Amen. Amen. This just in, pastor forgets his Bible in the back of the room. Worship leader prays long enough that he can go get it, and very few people noticed. Good job praying. Good job. All right. I think I have my kit now. (laughs) Good morning. Happy New Year. It is good to have you with us. I am Pastor Tom. If you are joining us for the first time, uh, we're glad to have you. You can um, let us know that you were here on this form. Just drop it in the bucket on your way out. Also a good way to communicate prayer requests with us. If there's anything going on in your life that you need prayer for, we encourage you to fill that out. Uh, Also, um, excuse me, during the time of offering... Later in the service, there'll be members of our prayer team uh, back in the back corner if you need prayer for anything while you're here or anything that's coming up in your life that you want someone to be in prayer with you about. uh, Please avail yourself of that opportunity. Um, You may notice uh, lying around here are some cards uh, for you to share a memory of John Davern, and we can just leave these for his family when we're done, but uh, you can... Put it in the front on your way out or drop it in the bucket and we'll take it from there. But uh, that's a great way to kind of bless them with some memories. And we have um, two services coming up this week. Uh, John's military honors will be rendered at the Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery at 10.15 a.m. on Tuesday. Uh, That's the 10th. And then on Saturday, July, I'm sorry, January, not July, January 14th, we will be celebrating the life of uh, Susan Dunn, a longtime member at Hope Church, and uh, that will be held at the Geneva School. There is a link on our Facebook page, uh, as well as on this form if you want to type all that in. Is it on here? No. But go to our Facebook, go to the Hope Church Facebook page if you want the Zoom link to watch the service or if you want to send it to someone. Um, And uh, that'll be Saturday at 2 p.m. at the Geneva School, just this side of Bernie. Um, So we'd love to have you there to celebrate Susan's incredible life and faith and legacy. Uh, I think that's, yes. Okay, yeah, put that in your map because there's construction going on out there and expect to be rerouted, perhaps. It's a gamble, but okay, good word. And that's why there are so few people here today is the construction on 1604. Yes, that's, that's it. Yeah. It would make it hard to get to Six Flags and back. Are you going today? No, we went yesterday. Yesterday. Okay. Very good. All right. All right. What else am I forgetting? Let's see. We're going to de-Christmas today. We're going to begin Discover Hope. If you are interested in becoming a member of Hope Church, 
we will begin that process a week from today after church. We will bring in lunch. We will feed you. Uh, and then we will have a small group time, some Bible study and discussion. And if you would like to, uh, that goes for three Sundays. And then you can make the decision as to whether you would like to join or not. Um, what? Men's night. Men's night on the, night, on the 20th. So that's not quite here yet, but that's coming up. Um, all right. Oh, and we have chili cook-off scheduled for February 19th. All right. Jackie, Jackie. You don't think you're going to take down the... Do you, are you excited about making the chili or eating the chili? All right. Bring it on. Bring it on. Uh, well, the Russians got involved in the ballots at the last chili cook-off. And uh, Wesley True won that one. Um, I, I'm, still fi- I'm still under protest on that vote. Uh, a, a, a W is a W. That is correct. You got one in the wind column. All right. I think that's everything I need to cover at this point. Did I forget anything? I did, Bill? Yes, so it's the Fort Sam National Cemetery actually operates uh, with a shelter system. They have five shelters, four of which are currently open and operational. So we will be at shelter number two. So if it started at 10, we'd be at shelter one. It's at 10.15, so we'll be at shelter two. Guess what happens if it's your service is at 10.30? There you go. Until it's four or five that's shut down, and then it's a gamble on the 1045 slot. But we're going to be there at 1015 at Shelter 2. Thank you for clarifying. And it's easy to find those markers down the main driveway. Yes, there's signs. And do, do follow the signs. Do not pull in and think, I know better than the signs do where I should go. Because then you'll be facing the wrong way, and somebody will need to get out, and you will be the person that's like, blocking the flow of traffic and all that kind of stuff. So do follow the signs. And it is a military place, so be prepared. Um, there's signs for everything. All right, And there will probably be a lovely person there from Porter Loring at the flagpole when you pull in to tell you that it's, it's going to be at Shelter 2. All right. Anything else? Anyone? Anyone? Well... Let's have all of the important people come down to the front at this time. If you are in fifth grade or younger, we invite you down for our children's chat before you go to Hope for Kids. Good morning. You all look wonderful today. Do you feel good? Yeah, almost only me. Almost only you, Esther. But you got you got two. Um, Two fellow children's ministry cohorts. So, okay, you've probably heard about Jesus. 
Where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem, and, his, and when he was born, he was wrapped up in what? A cloth. Yeah, rags, cloths. And he was laid to sleep where? In a manger. In a, in a feeding trough, in a manger, right? Probably had some donkey spit on it. I'm just saying. Would you like to be laid down to sleep where there's donkey spit? No. No? So... What does that tell you about Jesus' family? Were they rich and powerful? No. No. So you could argue the greatest person ever to be born was born into a poor family, didn't really have a place to sleep, so they they laid him down in a feeding trough, in a manger where he could rest. And why was his birth so important? Because he was Jesus. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Wait, wait a minute. I thought he was born as a baby. Was Jesus born as a baby? Yes. Yes. So he's not God. Yes. He is God. And he's a baby? God came to become human through Jesus, through the birth of Jesus. God became one of us so that he could lay down his life for our forgiveness. A human life for a human, right? Okay. And who came to see him when he was born? Three kings. Three kings. They were called the Magi. What does that mean? I don't either. Nobody does. <laughs> um, so three important people representing at least one king. Well, actually, Esther, to be clear, we don't know how many magi came to visit Jesus. We know there were more than one, so there were at least two. What gifts did they bring? Gold and frankincense and myrrh, right? Which are very valuable. And so they gave those gifts to the baby, to his parents. Seems like a silly thing to give to a baby, doesn't it? They should have brought diapers. I'm just saying. Um, But they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh because they understood that this was the birth of a king. And how do you honor a king? You give him gold and frankincense and myrrh and things that are, well, that important people get, right? So here he is, lying in a manger with donkey spit on it, and three people, well, multiple people show up with three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, fit for a king, and they lay them at his feet. That's pretty awesome. Do you know what that tells us? That Jesus, this... God, who became a baby, was and is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the name above all names. That's Jesus. And here's the best part. Where does Jesus live? In heaven. In our hearts. Both. 
in heaven and in our hearts. So the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the name the Lord of Lords, the name above all names lives in your heart. He loves you. You are his child. He loves you. Right? Okay. That's pretty awesome. The most important person ever born on this planet loves you. That's a good message. You agree? Okay. Can we pray? All right. Dear God, thank you for becoming one of us, for becoming human, for being born in Bethlehem so long ago, for what Jesus means to each one of us, that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the name above all names, and that he lives in each of our hearts. And we thank you for that gift, for your love, And we pray your blessing over these children as they learn more about you through your word uh, this morning in Hope for Kids. Fill them with your Holy Spirit and lead them into a deeper understanding of how much you love them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great time. Will you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for God's word this morning? God, our loving Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that as we open your word today, that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to us and grow us more and more into the men and women of God that you have created us to become. We ask that you would take all of the distractions that stand between us and you and what you want for us, and that we would lay them at the foot of your cross, that we would find there the grace, the strength, the hope, and purpose that we need to move toward what you have for us. And Lord, as we do that, we lift to you those relationships in our lives that are strained, and we pray for peace and reconciliation where it is needed. We lift before you those whom we know and love who are sick or recovering from medical procedures or facing uncertain diagnoses. We pray your healing mercies upon your people. Lord, we lift to you those who grieve. We pray that you would comfort them. We lift before you our nation and its leaders at every level of government elected and appointed. And we pray for wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift up our men and women in uniform who serve to protect and defend our freedoms as Americans, and we pray that you would watch over them and protect them. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way. We ask that you would bring them home safely. We lift up to you those who've returned home from their service changed as a result of the sacrifices they have made for us. And we pray that you would use us, your church, to pour out your healing upon them, mind, body, and soul. And Lord, we lift up your church here at Hope and around the world as your word goes forth through the mouths of your people today. May it not return to you empty. We lift to you those churches to whom we are connected through our denomination and our missions giving, and we just pray your blessing over all of those places where your name is proclaimed today. We especially pray for Paul and Elizabeth Branch in Guatemala We lift up John and Diane Davis in Laredo, Texas. We lift up Pastor Miguel and Tatiana in Camajuani, Cuba. 
We lift up Pastor Patchy and his wife Marilyn in Havana, Cuba. And we lift up uh, Monica and Benjamin Bailey in the Middle East and Robbie and Joyce Hamd as they continue to serve you uh, in Lebanon. And Lord, we um, just pray your blessing over all of those works and over the church plants that are going on in our state, uh, in New Braunfels, in Austin, and in Dallas. And we just pray your blessing over those young works. Uh, Be with us now as we open your word, open our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've been in a uh, series of messages that began in the season of Advent. Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, Um, and then on Christmas Day, traditionally in the church calendar, begins the how many days of Christmas? Twelve days of Christmas, which would have ended on January 5th. January 6th is the traditional start of a season in the church calendar called Epiphany. It's the celebration of the arrival of the wise men to visit uh, the newborn king. And that is where we find ourselves today in this series, is at the point in the birth narrative of Jesus that the wise men arrive. And there are a lot of things we don't know about uh, the timing of this occasion, Um, (coughs) excuse me, Uh, but here's what we do know, that multiple entities representing some authority in probably Persia arrive in Jerusalem just, you know, prior to finding Jesus, and they ask, like, where's the Messiah? And the people in Jerusalem start to kind of freak out, like, what do you mean? Well, here's the irony, that God's people are so caught up in their own stuff, in their own political uh, reality, that they forgot to check their Bible to find out like when and where the Messiah was going to come. And so three people representing a foreign entity, and again, probably from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, uh, show up in Jerusalem saying, "Um, we have a copy of your Bible that this guy named Daniel left for us, and it says that there should be a king born here, somewhere around here, around this time. Do you you know anything about him? And... uh, the, the beauty of the whole thing, right? God's people refuse to obey him in antiquity, as we do now, as we still do now. And he let them go into captivity by a foreign government. That was the Babylon, Babylonian Empire that took over Israel and Judah. And off went all of their prophets, all of their leaders, all of their... Uh, accessories at the temple, all of their scriptures. And there, then shortly thereafter, Babylon was overthrown by the Persian Empire, and all of that got captured and brought into the umbrella of the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. And then, all of these scriptures are copied and studied. In antiquity, 
people in, in authority, they wanted knowledge. This knowledge was power, and they wanted to know. Like, what does your God know? Does he know anything our God doesn't know? And these Jewish scriptures were uh, a new source of knowledge and understanding for these kings. And one of those kings um, fell in love with a Jewish woman named Esther. And that marriage wound up bringing about an example of God's salvation on his people. Um, And Esther's grandson, we think, or somewhere around one of her near descendants, was the king who said, Israel can go home. You can take your stuff and your scriptures and your leaders and your prophets and you can return home. And so it's almost like Esther saved Israel twice. She saved them. You can read that in the book of Esther. But then after the book of Esther, it's one of her descendants probably who then releases God's people to return to Israel. And they rebuild the temple where Jesus is dedicated as a baby. So Jesus is born. He's taken eight days later to the temple. He's dedicated there. He is then taken home. And at some point in the intervening months or couple of years, we don't know, these three magistrates, the Magi, from Persia arrive, probably, arrive in Jerusalem looking for the Messiah. They were reading the Jewish Bible. The people that were supposed to be paying attention to God's word had taken their eye off the ball. And they totally missed the fact that the Messiah was to be born in their midst, in their time. And so we come this morning to this convergence of history, the convergence of this Medo-Persian empire and their uh, accumulation of knowledge centuries prior, and their scholars, their students of all of these scriptures who realize when they see a sign in the sky that the time has come. And so they pack up their camels, and they head off to Jerusalem. You'll see it all play out here. But that's where we are today in in the birth narrative of Jesus. We're going to start, our first reading comes from Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Here we go. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, 
Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So a king is born... And the current king knows nothing about him. That's odd, is it not? Typically, I think, when royalty is born, everyone knows. It's announced. It's celebrated. It's public knowledge. And in this case, the king of kings and lord of lords the name above all names, is born in obscurity. And the current reigning political king over the people of Israel, Herod the Great, knows nothing about it. And this would be bothersome enough, except that there's some other king somewhere else who's wise scholars did know. They saw the sign. They knew what it meant because they had read their Bible. And they came to find the king who had been born. But they came to the current king because I think that's what you would do, especially if you're representing a foreign entity. You would come to the political sovereign of that region and announce your purpose, or you could be in trouble. And so they did. And uh, you probably know the rest of that story, that Herod, the wise men, didn't go back and tell him where the baby was, and Herod freaked out. And he had all the children under the age of two that were in the region of Bethlehem executed. Funny thing to do. Not funny, ha-ha, funny, weird. Um... And you might even think, well, that has to be fiction. No, no ruler would do that. I'll just throw you a little extra free piece of history. This is according to a Jewish historian named Josephus. When Herod fell ill on his deathbed, uh, this was around 3 or 4 B.C., so very shortly after Jesus was born and he had issued this order, um, he fell ill. And uh, he, knew he, was, he knew he was likely going to die. So he had 80, 80, 8-0 Jewish elders arrested and put in detention and gave orders that if I die, they are all to be executed. And he actually said, so that there will be mourning when I pass. There will be mourning in the streets of Israel when I die. 
What do you call that? Sick, crazy, megalomaniac, evil, right? This is, this is like really crazy. So ordering the execution of a handful of two-year-olds and younger does not seem out of character with the rest of the way history describes this person, right? He was loco. He was insane. And so in an effort to preserve and protect his power, which is so funny, because he really didn't have much power. He was a, he was a vassal under the Roman governor. So he didn't really have any, he was just sort of a, he was in charge of making sure that his tax collectors brought in revenue for the Roman Empire. That was about the extent of his authority. He didn't actually have political authority. He was just sort of a lower-level operative with ceremonial authority. And yet, he was paranoid enough to order all of these executions. The good news is, when he did die, uh, the orders to execute the 80 elders were torn up, and they were all released, and there was celebrations in the streets of Israel on the death of Herod the Great. So... Oh, God. Um, But here we are in this episode where all of this history is converging in in a very small town, in a very obscure place on the map, because that's where the Bible said the Messiah would be born. And here comes all of the the learning of the Persians to this point, this focal point in human history to recognize this is the one. This is the king. Uh, He was called here and elsewhere the king of the Jews. This was a significant title, you have probably seen a, a crucifix with the letters I-N-R-I on a little board above the figure of Jesus. Uh, that, if I can just translate that for you, those letters stand for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Rex Judeum, R-I. Yesu starts with an I in Greek, or Latin, um, Nazareth, that's where the N comes from, I-N, Rex for king, R, I, of the Yedua, or something like that. Um, Judaism also starts with an I, so I-N-R-I is just an abbreviation, because it's hard if you're making a little tiny crucifix to write out Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews in three different languages. Um, So that's what the abbreviation comes from. INRI is not in the Bible. It's just an abbreviation that that artists put on top of the cross when they were making crucifixes long, long ago. And it kind of stuck. But that's his his name as is given in this passage. And we'll see another instance of that later in in this time. But he is... Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Um, 
I guess I should probably explain the Nazareth part, since he was born in Bethlehem. I'll do that very briefly. There's another prophecy that talks about uh, the Messiah coming out of Nazareth, which is a different region of Israel. And we know that Jesus' parents were living in that region when Mary was pregnant, and they traveled to Bethlehem and Judah so that they could register for a census. That's where he was born. And then after that, at some point, they returned, when the baby was you know, well enough to travel, uh, they returned to Nazareth, where he grew up. And so out of Nazareth comes the Messiah, who was born in Bethlehem. It's a little confusing, but that's, that's how we think it all played out. And we actually don't know uh, how many wise men came. We know there was more than one. They brought three gifts. And we don't know if they actually came to Bethlehem or if they went to Bethlehem and they said, no, no, they left for Nazareth and they went to Nazareth and then left. We don't know. It doesn't say. Um, So we don't know how soon they got there. Probably not in the, the immediate wake of his birth, but probably within a year or so, maybe. We don't know. It's hard to say. Those dates aren't recorded. All right, there's the facts. Let's try to look at what all this means for us. I love, I love this, this appearance of these magistrates from a foreign land coming to find the king of the Jews. I love this. It, it tells us what we are to do. We are to seek him. We are to seek him as our king. We are to look for our sign and I think this is different for each one of us. I'll just tell you a couple of mine. I was a kid, and I was at a summer camp, and I was standing on a bridge at night, and there's water flowing underneath me, and the stars are in the heavens above me, and I can see the starlight glistening off the water. And I was overcome with <clears throat> this realization that there's something bigger than me out there that is awesome. And that was, I was probably eight, nine, something like that. And I vividly remember this moment as sort of the opening of that door, that window to heaven, like there's something more. I couldn't have told you at that moment exactly what that meant or what it looked like. I just knew that God was saying, hello, look up. Look around you. I'm everywhere. And this isn't, this isn't your last sign, but this is your first. And again, I just knew in that moment there was something greater, something grander, something magnificent, holy, and worthy of praise and honor and worship. And then... Later in my life, probably around the time I was in high school, I wanted to be like my older brother. I still want to be like my older brother, but that's not important right now. And uh, he had gone to this program at his high school called Young Life. It was just a Christian youth group kind of thing. And I wanted to be like him, and so when I got to high school, I went to Young Life. 
And I remember God using that to sort of crystallize for me what it was that I, that I came to be aware of on that bridge. Here, here's why I'm telling you all this. Each of us are given signs in our life, in our lives, that may not be fully understood at first, but will gain clarity later. As, as we look at all these things together, they begin to make sense. And this is exactly what God did with these wise men. They had these scriptures. They had a general idea from the scriptures of when and where. But then they saw a sign. A sign in the sky. And in the ancient world, this, everyone was paying attention. They saw the sign. And they said, that's different. We don't know that sign. We haven't seen that light before. Um, so it wasn't Halley's Comet. That was known. That was a known entity in the ancient world. It was something else. It was probably something supernatural. But we don't know that. And so they see the sign, they search the scriptures, and they say, we need to, we need to pack our camels and get to Israel. Something big is happening. So off they go. And again, what is that in your life? What are the signs that God has put before you? What in your life has pointed you to the Messiah? And even more importantly, who in your life points to him? What has God put in your life to point you to the King of Kings? And who has God put in your life to orient you towards the heart of God? To the Messiah. What? Who? If you don't already have your answer, it will come. It will all come together at some point. Look for your sign and search the scriptures. The wise men did it right. They read their Bibles. The people who were the possessors of the holy scriptures, they failed. The irony here is you can't miss it, right? Uh, it's, It's like having my Bible by my bed and never opening it, right? We do this. We're, we're spoiled. We, this is, we all have one of these, probably. We just don't search it. So there it is. Look for the sign. Search the scriptures. <clears throat> when, you're, when you're reading your Bible, the first thing I would tell you is understand context. Understand the context of the passage that you're reading. So if you're reading from the Old Testament, you need to understand this was written before Jesus came. If you're reading from the New Testament, you need to understand this was written after Jesus came. It's looking back to the cross. Um, And if I can just make a, a suggestion, like one of my favorite resources, and we stumbled across this a few years ago, Let's say that you you see a passage somewhere that's from, I don't know, pick a book, Numbers, all right? You can go to this website called thebibleproject.com, and you can watch about an eight-minute video on the book of Numbers. And it will give you, like, the full context of that book of the Bible. It's brilliant, 
It's like a cool little cartoon as the guy talks. It's like, it's really well done. And then go read your passage in Numbers, right? Or read the whole book or whatever you're, you're up to. Get some context and open your Bible. And here are the two questions I want you to ask. How does this passage reveal my need for Jesus, for the Messiah? Is it, is it talking about anger or selfishness or pride or hatred or grief or anything? What's it talking about? What's it, what's it revealing in me that shows my need for the cross And then how does this passage point to the Messiah? How does it point to him? Those are the two questions. And uh, those of you who've been around me for a while, you, you understand, like you've heard me say this before, I have a pet peeve with published Christian material. Here it is. It all goes like this. Read this passage. Great. Good job. What does this passage say? Excellent question. Right? Put it in context, understand it for what it is. Then, what does this passage say you ought to be doing? Okay. Then, it leaves the Bible altogether. This is Christian curriculum. Anything published anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, it's a little bit of a generalization, but just bear with me. It goes from, what does this say you ought to be doing? The next question leaves the Bible entirely and says, how well do you do that? And then, still not having any relationship to the Bible or the gospel, it says, how can you do that better? This is behavioralism, people. This is modern pop psychology that starts with a Bible verse. What God is asking you in the scriptures is very simple. How badly do you know you need me? And how fully can I reveal myself to you on the cross to meet that need? So when Bible study ends with Christ and what he has done for you, that makes it Christian. That's not pop psychology. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ speaking into my heart on a daily basis. That's the difference. And so... We are to be those who seek him, who look for the signs and dig into his word. And for that scriptural exercise to be Christian, it must end at the cross. That's where it ends. Because that's where Jesus did everything for my, your, our redemption. All right. We are to come to him, and then we are to do what the wise men did. We are to worship him. This is a really unusual step for foreign magistrates to take. They, they come following a sign. They go to the Bible. They figure out where. They head there. And at some point, they come face to face with the Savior of the world. What do they do? They fall down and worship him. I love verse 10 
the rejoicing that takes place with great joy. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We're on the right track. We have found the one, the promised one. Think about it. All all that they've read in their cultural context, in their education, all of it. They see the sign, they follow it, and here he is. The sign reappears, they're reassured, and they're ready. So we, like them, are to rejoice just at the simple fact that we can see him, that we can see the promised one. He is the promised one, and he is the source of eternal joy. Not only can you see the Messiah in Christ, but you can find the one thing that is one of the most slippery aspects of our humanity, joy. How do you find that? Well, Jesus is the answer to that question. Jesus is where we discover or rediscover that we are forgiven, that we are loved, that we've been redeemed at a price that another was willing to pay because he loved us. And so there, we rejoice in the promised one, and we find eternal joy. And we give him what is fit for a king. We bow down before him and worship him, and we treasure him. So much, much, much has been made of the three gifts. I I want to um, uncomplicate them for you. So it's possible that the gold represents one thing, the frankincense represents something else, and the myrrh represents something else altogether. It's also possible that these are the gifts that you bring to royalty. That this is the tribute that you pay to a newborn king. That in its simplicity, this is a recognition of the authority of God resting on this baby. That this is God himself become human. And so, I would just say, probably best, at least for now, just leave it there. They pay tribute to a king. They recognize who he is. They bow down before him. They worship him. They treasure him. And they obey him. God tells them, go home a different way. And they do. And they take their message with them. And I think all they were doing was offering that tribute in the customs of Persia. This is what this, these three things represent the wealth of their country of origin, and they're offering them to him as a sign that he is a treasured gift. I want to snip a few passages out of the end of the Gospel of John as we move through this 
um, last portion here. And these are going to come from the crucifixion narrative and the resurrection narrative. Um, And you will see where we get the I-N-R-I sign from, the Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Here we go. From John chapter 19, verses 18 and 19. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And then later in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And then after the resurrection, John twenty nineteen, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So, again, don't miss the irony, right? The Jewish people, God's people of that time period, rejected their Messiah. The same way we do. Same way I have in my own heart. Um, And out of that, three foreigners, probably from Persia, come and recognize he's the king of kings. And at the end of his life, a Roman governor has a sign made to slap on the top of his electric chair, his cross, that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Wow! That the truth is confessed from these unlikely sources. And from those who should have known better, they reject the promised one. And I'll just say it this way. If you're reading this passage, read it where you are the one who misses it. Where you are the one who has the scriptures and you completely don't see what God was doing. That's the way to put yourself into this passage. Otherwise, you end up saying terrible things about people uh, that are just like us. Does that make sense? Sorry, I digress. Um, Here it is. Let's just try to boil this down real quick. That as we seek him and worship him, we are to crown him as king, as the king over our own lives. This means we accept his death because there we find forgiveness and we show reverence to him for what he has done. He died for me. I have to render myself before him in gratitude. This is the great equalizer of Christianity. 
that no one is any better than anyone else because he had to die for each one of us. We are on level ground at the foot of the cross. We accept his death and we find ultimately his peace. This is um, no accident that these are among Jesus' final words to his followers. Peace be with you. That this is his message to them and to you. That you can have something because of what Christ has done that you never could have gotten for yourself. Peace with God. Peace. That elusive, impossible dream is real. In Christ, it is yours. His peace is there to calm your fears, and it's there to confirm your hopes. There is something more. There is something far greater than this life, than what we see. As glorious as this creation is, there is something that lies beyond that is greater still. Where his glory is unhindered, where his light is the only light we need, where his love shines eternal, where we live in peace forever. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your Son. We ask you to be at work within us by your Holy Spirit. Make us thirsty for your word, for your truth, for your grace, for your Son. Lord, lead us more and more into his presence, to see him, to worship him, to give him what he is due, to honor and recognize what he has done for us, and fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we may live in such a way that we do the same for those around us. In his holy and precious name we pray. Amen.